Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans chose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to anyone without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is written, it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we're continuing to look this morning at uh, 1 Peter that we've been in now for the last three weeks, and we've got as far as chapter 4. So if you have 1 Peter 4 open in front of you, I'm sure you'll find that helpful as we go through it this morning. I wonder, when you buy things, whether it be from a shop or whether it be online, uh, when you enter into a, a new contract for something, you rent something, you hire something, there's always a little thing at the end that says T's and C's, terms and conditions. I wonder, do you ever take any notice of them? And most of us just tick a box if it's online and say, yes, we, we've read those. And then sometimes when maybe something we bought or a contract we've entered into uh, doesn't match up to our expectations, we wonder, can I end this contract? Can I take that item back? Uh, what do the terms and conditions say? And then we have to look through a whole load of small print uh, to see if, in fact, anything can be done about it. Well, in this chapter here, 1 Peter chapter 4, what we've got are some of the T's and C's, some of the terms and conditions of living the Christian life. You see, Peter wrote this letter to encourage Christians to live, as verse 2 says, for the glory of God 
and for the will of God. So if we're living that kind of life, a life that we desire to live for God's glory in accordance with his will, what can we expect if we live this way? This chapter has three of the Christian T's and C's that we can look at this morning. They are service, suffering and salvation. So we look at each one of those as we find them here in this chapter. And we can see that these are just some of the terms and conditions of what it means to live a Christian life. So first of all then, service. We see that in verses 1 to 4 and 7 to 11 of this chapter. We can see in verse 2 that the aim of the Christian is not to live for human desires, but to live for the will of God. And the reason for that is in, is in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. We live for the will of God, for the glory of God, because of what Christ has done for us. And because the chapter begins with the word since, that means it links up with something that has gone before. And it links up with chapter 3 and verse 18, that I'm sure Sammy would have looked at last week. But to remind ourselves, it says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, and so on. And so one of the reasons, the main reason why we are to live this way is because of the suffering of Christ and what he has done for us. Let's just think about that for a moment. How did Jesus suffer? He suffered, of course, the injustice of a, a so-called trial, two of them, in fact, one before the Jewish Sanhedrin, one before Pontius Pilate. He suffered the physical agony of crucifixion. And crucifixion is probably the most cruel method that humans have ever devised for putting people to death. The agony of dying pretty well by asphyxiation when you, you couldn't breathe. The real physical agony that Jesus suffered on the cross. But I wonder, was that anything compared to the spiritual agony that he suffered on the cross of bearing our sins, bearing my sins, bearing the sins of the whole world upon his body on that tree? And perhaps even more agonising for him, it was the only time in all eternity when Jesus was separated from God his Father. My God, my God, he said, why have you forsaken me? He had to, as the prophet Isaiah said, tread the winepress alone. In other words, he had to go through what happened on the cross by himself, separated from his father, that he might suffer the full pain and the agony of what he was going through. And we are told why, that he might bring us to God. Now, isn't that a wonderful thought? That Jesus suffered all of that for you and for me in order that we might have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. What a privilege it is to be called the sons and daughters of the living God. But also, what a responsibility. Because if we have turned from our sin and if we trusted in Jesus, then our responsibility is to live for the will of God. So how are we to do that? Well, in verses 3 and 4 of our chapter, we have the negative, what we are not to do. 
And then in verses 7 to 11, we have the positive, how we are to live a life serving the Lord. Look at verses 3 and 4 there, the negative. It's to do with how many unbelievers were behaving in Peter's day. And I think you'll find it pretty well sums up what is going on in our day as well. Look at the description. It says, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. Those things are not compatible with living for Jesus Christ. I wonder, have things changed much since the first century AD? What do we see here? People living for pleasure, no restraint, no thought of the effect on other people. And verse 4 shows how unbelievers can't understand why Christians don't do these things. It says with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Uh, they can't understand. You Christians, why don't you do the things that we do? And the only way they can react is, it says here, by maligning Christians. NIV says heap abuse on them. In other words, they, they make fun of Christians. They make snide remarks because they can't understand what makes us tick and what makes us do what we do. You know, many years ago, I was marking an examination paper an examination paper of a year eight pupil. That means they are 12 or 13 years old. And there was an answer to one question that inadvertently uh, the pupil was really summing up so much of the attitude of unbelievers today. The question was on the Ten Commandments. They had been asked to learn the Ten Commandments and uh, to write something about them. And in this particular exam question, uh, they were asked to write out some of the commandments and explain what they thought they meant. Uh, never forget, I was marking this one paper, and this came out as one of the Ten Commandments. Do not admit adultery, instead, of course, of commit. And I thought, well, how that sums up the world in which we're living today. You can do as you like, as long as you don't admit it, and you don't get caught. A similar thing came when some new recruits were joining up for the army. And the army corporal was addressing these new recruits. And he apparently said this to them. He said, you're in the army now and you can do as you like as long as you don't get caught. If you get caught, then there are court martials and you might well be taken out of the army. But wasn't that interesting? He said, you can do as you like as long as you don't get caught. The attitude that many have today. The attitude, by contrast, of Christians who are serving the Lord is, is this something that is pleasing to God? Is this something within his will? Is it something for his glory? So the negative is, we don't do those things. But the positive is in verses 7 to 11. And there's a number of ways here that show what Christian service includes. Verse 7, Christian service includes self-control. It says, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. One or two slightly different words in, in other translations. Now, self-control is the opposite of what we saw in verse 3. It's the opposite of sensuality, passions, drunkenness, and so on. It's the opposite of just 
doing your own thing whenever you want, however you want, with whoever you want. Self-control is the ability to say no. It's the ability to resist the temptations of the flesh. It's the ability to control ourselves so that we're living a life that, as far as we're able by God's grace, is that which pleases him. It reflects something of his glory and it's within his will as we find it revealed in the scriptures. And remember, self-control is a part of the fruit of the Spirit as found in Galatians 5. And if we struggle with self-control, we say, oh, I really can't control my reaction to certain temptations. Ask God to give you the Holy Spirit, whose job it is to fill, that, fill us with that self-control. The first thing. The second thing is, a life of service is a life of prayer. But look at the connection there. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. An interesting connection. What's he saying? He's saying that if you exercise self-control, and by sober-minded he means to be clear-minded, if you are in control, if you have a clear mind, that will help you in your prayers. It'll help you in communication with the Lord as you seek guidance, help, strength comfort, grace, and so on, as you seek to, to praise him, as you seek to intercede on behalf of various people and situations. If we have that self-control and that clear mind, what he's saying is that will help you in your prayers. Christian service cannot be divorced from praying. So we've had self-control, we've had prayer. The next one in verse 8 is love. Above all, he says, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. That word earnestly, translated in the NIV as deeply. What he's talking about here is the love of God being reflected in his people. That phrase, love covers a multitude of sins, it's often quoted and it's often misquoted. What it means is this, that if you love someone, you don't give up on them, because of their sins. If someone annoys you, if you don't agree with their behavior, with their lifestyle, with things they say or whatever it is, if you love that person, you don't give up on them because of their failings, their shortcomings, their sins, because we have, of course, our own as well. This love that we're to show in serving the Lord is to reflect Jesus' love to other people. Now, I don't know anything at all about interior decoration, uh, but I do have a wife who likes watching house programmes on television and uh, I'll quite often watch them with her. And one thing I've noticed is this, that it's important where you put a mirror in a room, that often on these programmes you'll go into a house and you'll see a room and someone is saying, I must put a mirror in that place on the wall. And the reason is that if I place it there, it'll take in light coming maybe from a window and it will reflect that light to a darker corner of the room that needs more light. So you put the mirror where it can receive the light and where it can reflect it to a dark place. And you know, that's really how we're to be as Christians. We're to reflect Jesus' love. So we must be in the position where we see his love, we see his light, 
And that comes from reading and knowing his word and from a walk with him. And then as we are in that position, so that light is then reflected in, in dark places to people who don't know the love of Jesus, to those who have no understanding of God's light, to dark places. You and I, in serving the Lord, are to reflect the light of Jesus' love into the dark places, and we can only do that as we're in the right position to receive his light in the first place. And of course, showing this love can be done in all manner of ways. And one is mentioned here by way of example in verse 9. It's showing hospitality. Look at what Peter says. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, hospitality is frequently mentioned in the New Testament. In the New Testament world, inns were often dangerous and immoral places. Travelling Christians needed somewhere safe to stay. And so they would stay in the houses of Christians. Wonder how do you understand hospitality? A dictionary definition gives it as this. The friendly and generous reception of guests and strangers. I like that. Friendly and generous reception of guests and strangers. Ties in with what Peter says here. You do it without grumbling. So what he's saying is, if you're able to offer hospitality, if you have a house that you can open for people to stay in, or for people to come for a meal, or for a coffee and a chat, whatever it may be, according to your circumstances, if you're able, open your home and do it without grumbling. Not, okay, I'll have you for lunch next week, but I don't really want to. We do it without grumbling, because as we're told in Hebrews, by opening our houses to hospitality, that we can entertain angels unawares. And how often are we more blessed in giving than we are in the people that receive our hospitality? I wonder how good are we at doing that? And then one other aspect of service here in verses 10 and 11 is that we use the gifts that God has given us. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. We serve by using our gifts. Every Christian, I believe, has at least one gift from God. May well have several gifts. And whatever our gifts may be, they are to be used in the service of others. Now, the New Testament gives a variety of gifts. Peter doesn't list them here. He's just stating the principle. Whatever gift you may have, you are to use in the service of God. There are public gifts. There are private gifts. But they are not for our own benefit. They are for the benefit of others. But how often as we exercise those gifts that God has given to us, do we know a blessing as we are exercising those gifts, that ministry that God has given to us. Whether it's a public one like speaking, which is the example that Peter gives here, whether it's a more private one in visiting people, one-on-one -on -one conversations with people, entertaining people in our houses, organising, administering, whatever our gifts are, as we exercise them, we are blessed in the exercise of those gifts and they are to be done 
for God's glory. But you may say, oh, I, I can't use anything for God. I, I'm too weak. Uh, I'm afraid that is no excuse because we're told here in, in verse 11, we serve by the strength that God supplies. So if God has given us whatever that gift or gifts may be, he will give us the strength in order to use those gifts for his glory. The famous 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said this about serving God. He said, he is no Christian who does not seek to serve God. God deserves to be served with all the energy of which we are capable. We all have the privilege and the responsibility of serving the Lord in accordance with the gifts that he has given. And the specific ones, the outline here is, with self-control, with prayer, with love, showing hospitality, using our gifts. The first, T and C, is service. <clears throat> the second one we see is maybe one we don't like thinking of too much. It's suffering. We see that in verses 12 to 16 and verse 19, suffering. Remember, Peter was writing this letter to Christians in what we call today the northern part of Turkey. And many of those would be facing or would soon be facing suffering and persecution under the Roman Emperor Nero. And many will know that Nero was known for his cruelty, his barbarism. He was very happy to put Christians to death. Indeed, within two or three years of writing this letter, Peter himself was probably martyred under Nero and Paul as well. So within two or three years of what Peter was writing, Peter and Paul were probably martyred under the hands of Nero. So this letter had very immediate relevance to those to whom he was writing. So what does Peter say here about facing suffering? Let's just look at a number of points quickly. The first thing he says in verse 12 is, it is to be expected. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. What's he saying there? He's saying that suffering really is the norm for Christians. It's nothing unusual. We'll look a little later about how this may affect us in different ways. But what he's saying is, whenever you know any suffering for the Lord as a Christian, don't be surprised. Because the second thing he says it is there as a test. He says in verse 12, don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you when the fiery trial comes to test you. That links up with what he said in chapter 1 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And in verses 6 and 7, Peter said there, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's he saying there? When this suffering comes, the trial is to test you as gold is tested and refined by fire to make you pure in the sight of God. That is how we get pure gold when it's been refined in fire. So our times of testing and of trial and of suffering as a Christian are to make us more mature in our walk with the Lord, 
and to prove that we are genuine. Our faith in Jesus is real. It doesn't vanish the moment we have a trial coming. It's there for our purity, our maturity, and our reality as a Christian. Many of you will have read books or seen a film about Corrie ten Boom, the Dutch lady who during the war hid Jewish refugees in her house in Holland. Uh, she was caught and she was taken to Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany, where she went through the most horrific circumstances, as you can imagine. But when she eventually was released and she wrote about what it was like being in there, on one occasion she said this, and try and picture this in your mind. She said, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away your ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. What was she saying there? She was saying when you're in a dark, dark tunnel on a train, you trust the engineer who designed and who built the tunnel that there will be a way out, that you will be able to escape, there will be light at the end of it. You sit, you wait, you trust the engineer. What was she saying? When as Christians we may be in very dark places, we sit still and we trust our heavenly engineer, our heavenly creator, the designer, the one who allows us to go through all manner of circumstances. And it ties up what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. He said, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so testings are there, but they are there in such a way, verse 13 says, that we can even rejoice in them. Verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. How can a Christian rejoice in sufferings? Well, Peter says, you are sharing the sufferings of Christ, and it points to the joy that is to come, to the glory that is to be revealed. Many of you will remember, others will have learnt about in history or read about what happened in Aberfan 55 years ago, 1966, when an awful tragedy took place when the coal tip slid down the mountain, engulfed the primary school in Aberfan, 144 people died, including 116 children. An awful, awful tragedy. One year later, there was a special service held in Aberfan, and I was privileged to be there. The preacher of that service was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you've never heard of him, I would say, without any doubt, he was the greatest Welsh preacher of the second half of the 20th century uh, and possibly for longer. But I will never forget that service, one of the most moving I have ever been in. He preached on Romans 8 verse 18, and this is the text. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. In that congregation were a lot of people who had lost children, grandchildren, nephews, nieces, friends, neighbours and so on in that tragedy. 
there were a lot of tears in that service. But as people were coming out, having heard that sermon, you could see a change. That though there was still a great deal of sadness and of grief, you could see as well that people came out with a measure of joy. You could see faces were, were shining. Faces were smiling as they were looking not at the sufferings, but at the great glory that Dr Lloyd-Jones opened up in the way that maybe only he could, of the wonder that faces us as Christians, the joy that is to come. He changed the whole perspective of that congregation and probably of the village from simply dwelling on the sadness of the past, but looking towards what is to come. Another example. One of my favourite quotations is from a man called Polycarp. Polycarp was Bishop of Smyrna in this area here that Peter was writing to, uh, but a little later in the second century AD. And he was living in the time when the Roman Emperor had told everyone to say, Caesar is Lord. Obviously, Christians couldn't say that. Polycarp was an old man by this time. He was an old bishop. And he had some kind of mock trial because he had refused to say Caesar is Lord. And the person, the, the guard that took him there, said to him, he said, say curse Christ and Caesar is Lord and I'll release you. To which Polycarp gave this wonderful answer. He said, 86 years I have served him and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king? and my saviour and with that he went to his death but what a wonderful thing to say served him for 86 years he never did me any wrong how now can i deny go against my king and my saviour and it's recorded that he went to his death with great joy and a smile on his face he knew he was about to meet his saviour so he's talking here then about rejoicing in sufferings he also says in verse 16 that to be insulted for Christ, uh, verse 14, sorry, to be insulted for Christ is a blessing. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And the reason given, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And remember that Peter's writing this. Peter would have heard Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount. He would have heard Jesus say these words. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and write a letter, sorry, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Peter would have remembered those words. And he's saying now to these Christians to whom he's writing, remember what Jesus said, you will be persecuted, but you can rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Verse 16 tells us that it's only suffering as a Christian that glorifies God. And verse 19 tells us that suffering as a Christian is in God's will. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So we're looking at suffering. How does this apply to us? Remember here, Peter is not addressing the wider problem of why is there suffering in the world and so on. It's not suffering generally, it's suffering as a Christian. Now, we know very little of this in the UK and we can thank God for that. But what kind of things may you and I have to suffer because we're a Christian? Maybe some mockery, 
Maybe some people giving us the cold shoulder. Maybe, a bit more seriously, failure to get a job or even lose our job because we're a Christian. I heard a little while ago of a Christian who went for a job interview in a business. And when the interviewer found out that the person was a Christian, he said, and I quote, Christianity is an unrealistic philosophy for the business world where everybody is out to cheat everybody else. He said to him, if you're not prepared to fiddle the VAT, if you're not prepared to cheat on the way that you do your orders and make your recordings and one thing and another, then you can't work here. Not surprisingly, he didn't get the job. And that makes it harder for Christians in some businesses and industries to get a job and sometimes causes them even to lose their job. It might be in the end of a relationship, it might be in the end of a friendship and so on. But really those things are relatively minor compared to the suffering and the persecution that is going on even today all around the world for people who refuse to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. In many countries of the world today to be a Christian can mean exceedingly unfair treatment, imprisonment and even death. Let me just give you a few little bullet points about one or two things that are happening in our world today. In Nigeria, do you know in the last year nearly 6,000 Christians have been killed for their faith? Children there are being kidnapped regularly. Just two weeks ago, 140 children from a Christian school were kidnapped. And as of yesterday, 125 were still missing. China. Approximately 100 million Christians are under constant surveillance. They can't go anywhere, they can't do anything without the cameras knowing where they're going, what they're doing, what they are saying. Many pastors are imprisoned, many Christian buildings have been demolished, and so on. India. In India, the Hindu nationalists have vowed to eradicate Christianity by the end of this year. Now, we know they've got no chance of doing that because God protects his church. But it means that Christians in India, many of them from the lower caste of people, are knowing great suffering, being attacked physically, being denied jobs, being denied COVID support at the moment and all sorts of things because they are Christians. North Korea. Christians are sent to harsh labour camps. Cruel, uh, almost starvation there. It's estimated there's about 300,000 Christians in such camps in North Korea, where even possession of a Bible can be life-threatening. And we could go on and we could go on. And yet, we read many testimonies showing how persecuted Christians are able to rejoice in their sufferings and to know great blessings from God. Here's a quote very recently from a, an Indian woman. She was severely beaten in her own house by eight or nine men with metal rods for half an hour. She was almost dead. Yet afterwards, she said this. She said, God protected me and my life was spared. I felt his presence. If not for God, we would be dead. I have never thought of leaving God because he alone has helped us. Remain in Christ Jesus, who sustains us, and he will bless you. Peace in Christ is found nowhere else. That is the reality of suffering as a Christian 
in this world today. How we need to pray for such people and to learn from them. We have one more thing and time is nearly gone so I must be very quick. We've seen a Christian TNC is service, is suffering. The third one, a great one, salvation. Uh, very quickly we see it in verses 5 and 6 and 17 and 18. Verse 5, verse 5 is a very serious verse. It's talking about how these unbelievers are behaving and Peter says they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. It reminds us there is a judgment to come. All will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and all will be asked this question. What did you do with Jesus Christ? Verse 17 says, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And the outcome for those who reject him is exclusion eternally from the presence of God. Jesus says in Matthew 8 verse 12, they will be in outer darkness, away forever from the light and the love and the grace of God. But the good news is there is a gospel. It's referred to in verse 6 and in verse 17. That those who have turned from their own way, that's what the Bible calls repenting, and have trusted and followed in Jesus, will be welcomed eternally into God's presence, where there is fullness of joy, perfect peace, eternal love, where there is no suffering, no pain and no death. For those who have said to Jesus Christ, I'm going to turn from my own way. I want you to forgive me for all the wrong things that I've done because you died for me on that cross at Calvary. I trust you. I want to receive you as my Lord and my Saviour. For those who can say that, then on that day when we face God in judgment, you know what we'll hear? Those glorious words? Well done. Good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. What a joy that is. What a privilege. This is why the gospel must be preached. Peter says in verse 6, this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who were dead. That's why we must preach the gospel. Tell them that Jesus died, taking the consequences of my sin, of your sin on the cross, that I may be forgiven and have peace with God. How do I know if this is true of me? How do I know that I will not face that judgment that casts me into outer darkness, but I'll hear those words that welcome me into God's presence? We read in John chapter 1 verse 12, To all who received him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become the children of God. What's it saying? It's saying that you believe and you receive. Let me illustrate it like this. You know there's a new £50 note just come out. Haven't seen it. Apparently it's got uh, Alan Turing, the code breaker, uh, on the back of the £50 note. If I now were to say to you, I've got a spanking new £50 note here. It's shiny, it's crisp and it's a brand new one. Would you like it? What would you say to me? Would you say, well, let me look at it. Oh yes, isn't that nice? I like the picture. Oh, it's got a nice wording on it. So I can see the watermark. Oh, yes, I believe it's real. I believe it's true. I believe it's genuine. Thank you for showing me. And then you walk away and do nothing. That is not going to benefit you in the slightest. 
The sad thing is, we can do the same with Jesus. We can say, yes, Jesus, I believe you are true. I do believe what you say about yourself. I believe that you did many good works and it's, and it's good for those who trust in you. They, people can admire and respect Jesus and yet walk away never receiving him. For Jesus to do us good, we need to believe that he died for my sin. We need to be sorry for that sin and to receive him into our life. There needs to be that conscious choice, that decision that says, I give my life to you, Lord Jesus. And the wonderful thing is, when we do that, we become eternally the children of God. So these T's and C's, terms and conditions, they may sound rather daunting. We may ask the question, is it worth it to live that life? Can I suggest we've got the pronoun wrong in that question? What we should really say is, is he worth it? Is Jesus worth it? The only one who loved us so much that he died for us, who forgives us, who keeps us, who helps us, who gives us joy and love and peace, grace to help, strength, eternal life and so on. If you were to ask that question to all those countless billions of people in heaven, is he worth it? You know what? We will get a resounding shout of, yes, he is worth it. And I trust if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, that echoes in your heart. Is he worth it? Yes, he's worth it. He's worth all to me. He's my Lord. He's my saviour. He gave himself to me. Yes, these terms and conditions are worth it because Jesus is worth it. May we seek to honour God by accepting his T's and C's. And if by God's grace we know what it is to live a life of service, yes, to endure what suffering may come our way, but to know the wonders of salvation, then he'll be glorified and we'll be blessed. Shall we pray for a moment? Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word this morning and thank you that it speaks to real situations that we face. We pray you would help us to live a life of service for you, that we may know your help and grace in times of suffering and that we may rejoice in knowing what it is to have that salvation that we are guaranteed to have an eternity with you. Help us, we pray, to trust you and to follow you. In Jesus' name. Amen.